Welcome back to Foster Adopt Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Sunny, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster Adopt Minnesota. And I'm Chris, also an education coordinator here at Foster Adopt Minnesota. We are still promoting our spring summit and getting to know our presenters. This is our fourth presenter in the series, so we're about halfway to our summit. Today, we are excited to introduce you to Jimmy Heggs, a trainer and consultant with 20 years of experience in restorative practices, crisis prevention and intervention, and social emotional learning practices. Jimmy enjoys helping clients find the power to face their fears by embracing the courage to be imperfect. Welcome, Jimmy. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, just really want to start off by asking, how does crisis commonly develop? Well, a crisis commonly developed with noticing that someone is a little bit different than what they ordinarily are. I mean, one might call it anxiety, but generally speaking, it's a noticeable change in behavior. Uh, what usually pairs with that is a change from a noticeable change in behavior to unwarranted defensive behavior. Mm. Can you give me examples of that? So someone who's typically talkative may be quiet and someone who's quiet may start to be talkative or withdrawn or fearful or angry for a reason that you're not necessarily aware of. And when you check in with them, um, they may, you know, want to know why you're checking in with them. They might want to question, um, what's going on, their current routine, something that's scheduled, something that would ordinarily land as typical, but for whatever reason, they find it irritating or distractive. distracting. Mm -hmm. So how do you get to the root of what's happening? Well, one of the best practices is simply to be supportive. You're supportive when you ask them, you know, I noticed that you're showing up a little bit different. And I was wondering if there's anything I can do to help. You may be supportive when you uh, try to inquire about things you can do to help redirect them back to a baseline, you know, the behavior that they commonly show up with. And you can most certainly be supportive when they, you know, spill the beans and say, you know what, you're right. I got a lot of things going on. And here, here's a couple of those things. And I'm sorry I behaved that way. So through and through, despite what you do specifically, generally speaking, you can just show up with a supportive presence. Supportive presence, that's great advice. And that is that for caseworkers or is that for parents? Um, it's for both caseworkers and parents because being supportive in general um, has a degree of universality to it. So despite whether you're a supervisor, um, a coach, a parent, a teacher, a therapist, or educator, or a caseworker, you chances are you won't lose being supportive or, or showing up in a way that you lose support. I like it. Okay. Well, um, can you give us examples of maybe just a couple little examples of how one can be supportive? Okay. All right, so 
When you think about the way a crisis commonly develops, sometimes it comes with information-seeking questions. Uh, information-seeking questions are just designed to get more information that they don't ordinarily have. However, sometimes they're question designed to challenge. Um, who made you the boss? Do you think you control me? Who died and made you king or queen? Why do you believe you could tell me what to do? Who writes this policy anyway? In those ways and in those occurrences, you can kind of detect that the question that they're asking isn't particularly seeking information, but more designed to be a barrier and shows you that they might be experiencing anxiety. And when you're given an intervention, um, you can watch the what you say, how you say it, and the body language you're using to say it with. So to me, being supportive is minding your body language and the delivery um, delivery means in which you use in order to give them information that they might need or to sidestep the challenge of a defensive question. Mm, yeah, that's really good advice. Are those the only approaches that you would take to navigating a crisis? Um, sometimes it's important to set limits depending on the circumstances. Um, it's important to consider two things, being compassionate and considerate with the client and also uh, helping them to understand the limits that prevent you from giving them maybe exactly what they want or exactly how they want it. So one of the broader concepts is to set limits and three principles of that is being respectful as you explain what limits are, keeping it simple as you uh, explain what limits are, and being reasonable. So what that means is that if there's wiggle room inside of the limits that constrains both you and the person who feel anxiety who or who's uh, feeling escalated, seeing what you can do to maneuver around or make an exception if all possible. So that's respectful, simple, and reasonable. Like it. Respectful, simple, and reasonable. RSR. Okay. So what factors might negatively impact your ability to remain consistent and calm when responding to a person experiencing crisis? Oh, well, that's a good question. Well, between the time we wake up in the morning and the time we get to our own job, there's a lot of things that impact us. And as caseworkers or people in the helping profession, we also bring our human experience to a situation as well. So some of the things that might impact our ability to effectively help someone to deescalate might be the fact that we woke up late. Uh, maybe we didn't get our coffee. Maybe traffic was particularly upsetting. Uh, our own family stress, illness, feeling under the weather, um, interpersonal conflicts, uh, you name it. So those are things that we show up with. However, when it's two people, only one of them is tasked to help the other person de-escalate. So one of the barriers is holding the first frustrations or uh, dilemmas that you might have, putting that on pause in order to have the presence of mind 
to stay the course and helping somebody else to do this be disrect be re-regulated oh that's a really good advice so look inside yourself first right before mm-hmm. you try to help someone else well how would okay so say you have a really bad day and 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 it's only nine o'clock in the morning so how mm-hmm. would one rationally detach in a dis in the distress of de-escalation um <clears throat> one of the ways in which people rationally detach or commonly rationally detached is asking uh, the question, what role do I play? Or if I play a role in the conflict, what's coming up for me? How am I responding? How did I respond? What information do I have and don't I have? Um, What is it about this interaction that's drawing uh, or inhibiting me from being able to co-regulate like I commonly do. More specifically, rational detachment is a way of self-soothing and coping. So one might take a walk, listen to music, uh, just sit in silence and work on breathing, uh, find something fun. I like to find something funny on YouTube. You might text or interact with a friend or have a conversation that don't particularly have to do with the encounter you just had. No, I like it. Can you give me an example of when someone successfully self-soothed? Okay. So working in the helping profession, there are often times where someone may come in at, at a high rate of escalation. And despite your best efforts, um, you wasn't able to help them to calm down, and then the interaction lasted a long time. So what we commonly do as colleagues is tag each other out. Another partner agreed before a situation happened to see and notice when someone looks as if they're being drawn into uh, something that's more conflictual than de-escalating and tag them out. I might say, hey, you got a phone call that you got to take or I was wondering if you can grab the thing off the desk for me that we talked about, some kind of cold word to help and assist a colleague um, who seemed to be drawn into a conflict and your ability to receive redirection from a colleague it, um, in the case where you aren't able to adequately de-escalate a situation like you would ordinarily do. Ah, I like it. It's like good cop, good cop. Yep, that's right. It's <laughs> great advice. All right. So what are the aspects of communication to consider during de-escalation? Um, three other aspects I think are important. I mean, there's a lot of them. Three that come to mind right away is your tone, your volume, and your rate of speech. Generally speaking, If someone's uh, elevated and they're talking a little bit louder, one of the most common and effective interventions is to talk a lot more softer. What you want to do is give them a lower pace or a lower rate which you're speaking and not match the rate that they're speaking in terms of how loud it is. Also, 
your rhythm of speech. Instead of talking fast, which uh, people commonly do when they feel elevated, to talk just a little bit slower, to slow it down a little bit because when we're upset, uh, we revert from our executive functioning to our back brain and we feel a little bit more of the fight, flight, or freeze response. And when we're particularly in a conflict, sometimes we feel more of the fight response. So slowing down, um, choosing your words carefully, the tone, and the speed in which you speak are three ways in which you can help someone to de-escalate. Hmm. So I noticed that your tone is very calming and your speech patterns are very, hmm. very soothing. So is this how you normally act on a day-to-day -day basis or is this your professional voice? Probably both, Dan. You know, with my friends and we hang out and we're laughing and talking and it's probably more of a playful environment. So in those environments, uh, talking, probably talking faster, probably talking loud, probably talking over, we're probably talking over each other. So it's a lot more playful and jovial. Uh, generally speaking, being in a helping profession, people really need me to show up in a way to give them some kind of a service. It's a difficult situation most of the time, and they probably feel upset by the time they get to me. So the degree to which I can uh, give them a calm presence by slowing down, not giving them too much information, by not really talking loud, but talking in a way that's appropriate to the situation or even at best soothing. And then just monitoring my tone, the way in which I inflect compassion, consideration in the way I am reflect being delicate, all plays a part of just being effective. Usually that's my default settings. Again, unless, unless I'm playing. Right, right, got it. All right, thank you, Jimmy. So what else would you like to share with us? Well, one of the, one of the things I found valuable among the various interventions one can do in order to help someone to de-escalate is really focusing on skills and listening. Now, you don't have to be a therapist to do this, and it's probably listening one-on-one, -on -one, but it's always important to revert back to the basics. So generally speaking, people just want to be heard. They want to at least get something off their chest and even the act of getting something off them, their chest helps them to calm down. So despite what they say, generally speaking, whether you disagree with it or not, it's an opportunity to, number one, remain non-judgmental. Non it's their perspective. It's their, the way they chose to see things. Um, and it's something that you can just simply hear them out about. Giving your undivided attention. This one is because we live in such a fast-paced environment with so many demands as caseworkers and people in general in the helping professions, listening to the facts as well as the feelings. A lot of times people uh, tell you a lot of things that's going on in a sequential and factual way, and then they'll tell you, if you listen a little bit close, how they feel by, about them, as well as the story they told themselves about those facts 
So being able to tease it out or listen to them really gives you an opportunity to genuinely understand them. Allowing for silence is another way in which you can hone in your listening skills. Giving time to take a pause between the question they may or may not ask, the belief that they might hold that ain't particularly true or is consistent, and just giving them an opportunity just to say what they have to say and you not be you be more engaged in listening than responding to something they may have said in the beginning, the middle, or, or the end of being able to um, voice their frustration. And then paraphrasing. Um, it's one thing for people to be heard. It's another thing for people to, for it to be confirmed that they were heard because you're able to say, what I heard you say was this in a nutshell. Because either yes, that's what they said, kind of, sort of, is what they said, or no, that's not what I said. What I really said is this. Despite which of the buckets it falls in, it's an opportunity there to get it right because it's almost fail safe. Another area that's important to attend to is your, is your nonverbal communication. What that can look like is crossing your arms when someone's talking, even though you might be just a habitual arm crosser, I am. However, when I'm in a situation where someone feels escalated, I know that they're not only feel escalated, they got a lot of questions on the degree to which I care or I feel frustrated. So keeping my arms not crossed, um, maintaining eye contact, not, nothing particularly intimidating. And yes, culture influence eye contact, but generally speaking, letting them know that I'm paying attention to them, that I see them. Um, I, instead of slouching away as if I'm disengaged, I try and sit upright. Um, I try not to cast a fake smile. I know some people do that because they feel nervous. I give them direct with my body communication as opposed to uh, shrinking away from them. And I try to just really calm my body on something like wrinkling my hands or shaking my leg or something like that. Um, one of the ways in which if they're really escalated, I really think about my position, my pox, my posture and my proximity. I want to never, I, I want to not be uh, blocking an entrance or exit. I want to have my arms open, showing that I'm demonstrating openness and I want to be where they can see me. People want you to give them some space. They want you to be in the line of sight and they want you to demonstrate openness with your body so that they can see if it matches the way in which or the words that you're using. When it gets down to it, it's hard to try and de-escalate somebody. It brings up a lot of fear and anxiety to, to be able to maneuver through it successfully. One of the things that's a best practice that I find successful is really uh, taking slow, deep breaths and coaching yourself that chances are you're going to be okay, that they're escalated, and the degree to which you can stay calm is the degree to which you're going to increase the probability that they're going to be calm. And you can check your perceptions of what's going on, what's coming up for you 
um, as they talk and see if you can just notice without judging what's coming up so you can have more space to listen and be attuned to what they got to say and let time pass in order for them to uh, move from being escalated to de-escalated. Um, and then get help if you feel particularly intimidated because sometimes it's just intimidating. It might be nice to either pre-plan um, a way you can get help in case you feel uh, overwhelmed with feeling intimidated and just so everybody can be safe. And there's always uh, safety in numbers, but more so it's accountability when you have more than one person. It's more than my word against there. The last thing I'll leave you with is probably ways in which you can set limits. Some people like to, to maybe um, revert the attention of a person feeling escalated to something else that's more pleasant. If that ain't triggering, if that's appropriate, some people might uh, want to give them information, which is soothing. Say, when you do this, then we can do that. So you just let me know uh, when, whenever you're ready, I am. And sometimes you can just give people choices. Um, you can either do this and you could do that. Whichever of the two works fine with me, let me know which of the two you would like to do in order for us to move forward. Again, this is limit setting. So it's not about the limit setting of themselves. It's about your presence and the delivery when you communicate the limits that usually involves both you and them because the limits of what you can do and how you can help them probably govern your status as a case manager or as an employee, as well as the limitations in which the one can receive the help that they perceive that they need. So when you ask me what some of the things, my last thoughts, those are, those are the things I feel like I've leaned into over time. And those would be kind of the thoughts and ideas that's more the basics in, in both the finer points of helping somebody become uh, less, less elevated than what they are ordinarily are or where they where they at right now okay those are that is a great list of advice there so thank you so much for that thank um, you Pat. absolutely if you would like to learn more from jimmy he will be presenting a webinar for foster adopt minnesota on april 27th at 9 a.m jimmy can also be reached at clinicianheeks at gmail.com that's c-l-i-n I-C-I-A-N-H-E-A-G-S at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.